everybody, and thanks for listening. This is episode four of The Minimal Pair. I'm Jean Dempsey, and this is Stephanie Axe. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. So are you ready for our big trip? I am, and I'm not. I am ready, you know, in my head. I am prepared and uh, already kind of there. But in the physical world, there's still laundry to do, still bags to pack. Outfits to plan. Exactly. The only thing that I know for sure I'm packing is my new The Minimal Pair t-shirt. That's right. That's right. We both have them. But otherwise, I haven't, I haven't done anything. But I'm getting excited, so... Um, that's in two days. We're leaving on Wednesday. That's right. And some of you may be lucky enough to be out there already. So, um, you know, hopefully you're listening as you're maybe between sessions or getting yourself, you know, around in the airport. But uh, we will be there Wednesday evening. So, Stephanie, uh, what are your priorities for TESOL 2014? You know, I had been kind of mulling over the list and I mean it's such a massive list it's intimidating so many options and I'm somebody who if you give me a ton of options you know it could have me in tears um in fact you know I used to work in international relocation and I would help people move and um they would call me after their first trip to an American grocery store because they would be looking for toilet paper or you know mustard or ketchup something you know that we have like a whole aisle of where maybe in their country they have like two options and they would be in tears over it. And that's almost how I feel after looking at all of these lists. I feel very overwhelmed. Definitely. um, You know, I want to go everywhere and be everywhere. So, you know, I've had to kind of come up with some top priorities. So for me, um, one thing is grammar. That's something for me I feel I can always use improvement. And, um, you know, it's not something, if I'm being completely honest, it's not something that comes perfectly natural to me in teaching. I'm not really a rules-based person in general. And so um, for me, a lot of times the structure of grammar, um, it can be a little bit of a bore. Um, But I'm looking for new ways to teach grammar. I'm always looking for more collaborative, communicative ways. So, so that's something I'm going to be exploring at TESOL, hoping I find some great tips from people who are um, more seasoned than I. So. Yeah, I definitely want to attend some sessions on grammar also. I really like grammar, and I wouldn't say that it doesn't come naturally to me, but I think my problem is um, that the explanations don't come naturally don't come very naturally. So in my mind, I I can understand it, but I have sometimes a difficult time verbalizing to students why this is that and this this is that. So I'm looking to gain a little bit of confidence in my grammar teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel you there. And, you know, it's always like, doesn't that just feel right? You know, when yeah, it doesn't it just asks, sound right? Don't you just know? It? I just feel it. You feel it, right? You know, you'll exactly. know you got it when you feel it. Well, no, I know that that's not really the case most of the time. So, so yeah, I want to, I want to get better at my own personal style of teaching grammar. Now, if I took a grammar class, I'd ace it. But in terms of, like you said, teaching it, having more confidence, those are things that I could definitely um, improve upon. So, well, maybe you should sign up for my grammar class and we'll see how you do. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. So what else do you want to focus on at uh, TESOL? Well, I'm really um, focused, you know, currently just on academic writing myself. And so I'd really like to catch some great sessions on academic writing, as well as kind of including in that the editing process. Uh, For me, 
the editing process is such a huge piece that sometimes gets overlooked by the student because they're in a hurry or they don't really value looking at something again. Or, as I know from listening to my own podcasts, it's hard sometimes to go back and revisit something you've created. Exactly. You and just admit, want to be done with it. Yeah. And, and admit that it could use work. Um, you know, and so for me, I feel like everything could always use more work. And um, that's one thing I'm, I continue to work on, too, with my academic writing, even though I feel like it's a strength for me to teach that. Um, I could always be better. So, yeah. Yeah, I also would like to um, work on in- incorporating some ways to teach editing because I feel like it's not enough just to give them back what they've written and say here find the mistakes and um, all too often I feel like that's what happens and of course that's overwhelming and of course they're not going to find their own mistakes because they're the one who made the mistake Um, so teaching them strategies for finding the mistakes uh, that would definitely be something that I would like to learn more about at at TESOL this year. Um, I also really want to attend some sessions about incorporating technology into the classroom. Uh, I know there are a lot of sessions about that, so I feel like if I can't get to all the ones I want, I can definitely squeeze one in. Um, that's something that um, is getting, it's getting harder and harder not to have technology in the classroom. And so I need to do myself and my students a favor by making more of an effort there. Right. Yeah. You know, technology, that is something that comes a little easier to me because I'm I I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm tech savvy, but I think compared to the general population, I'm, I might be. I'm, well, we know that, that you are compared to me. <laughs> this <laughs> podcast has been um, such a, a new venture for me and t- using Twitter and all the social media. So um but, but if anything, I think it's been a wake-up call, and it's made me feel brave enough to explore that more in the classroom. So that's yeah. been really good. Yeah, and you know, there are still some students who, like you, maybe that it doesn't come as naturally to them to use technology, but they want to learn, and they know that they need to learn. And so if we can give them access to that in the classroom, you know, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that. Um, and it's not to say you step into my classroom and it's like technology all the time. It's... Uh, you know, not something we do even every day, but I do feel like I incorporate technology a fair amount within within all my classes, pretty much. So, so yeah, yeah, you'll have to report back to me on what you're learning in a lot of those classes. Well, I'll probably report back to you and then ask you for some some follow up <laughs> explanations. Um, what other what other sessions would you be interested in seeing, or what other priorities are you? you hoping to focus on? Sure. Well, you know, um, you know, I've talked about maybe even focusing a couple of uh, a couple of segments on classroom flipping. Right. And so I'd, I've never done that before. It's something I'd like to try. And I want to see what I really would like to see, um, you know, because I understand the basics behind it, but I want to see how people have done it, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked as well as, you know, any kind of out-of-the-box thinking in terms of using flipping. Um, for me, I just think that it's a fascinating idea, and anything that can kind of help use your face-to-face time with the students in a more productive way, I am all for that. So I would love to explore that more, and and even maybe we could do a little flipping, a flipping challenge. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, that's a perfect example of how we could both work on incorporating technology into our classroom, because... Yeah. 
Um, isn't that sort of what classroom flipping is? I think you, I had never really heard of it before you, you told me about it, but isn't it, um, recording the lesson for the students to, to watch at home? Right. So you're giving them basically the lesson in advance so that they watch it before they come to class. Um, you know, and it's something too, I, what I like about it is that they can rewind, they can watch it multiple times. One thing I've learned in my listening and note-taking class is that students really do go back and watch things and listen to things multiple times if they have the choice or the option. So um, if I can give that to my students, I would love to. But one area that's a kind of a weakness for me, and this is probably something I'll look for in the sessions is organization um, and getting yourself prepared well enough in advance to have it up, you know, posted to Blackboard or wherever you're going to post it so that students can have access to it in advance. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're like me and you're finishing your lesson plan five minutes before class starts, then that's not really an optimal situation for, for trying out classroom flipping. Exactly. Exactly. And I am somebody who I like to go with the flow. Here I am talking about my lack of rules-based mentality, but sometimes, you know, I'm not, I don't always stick to the plan. Even if I do have the lesson plan up in advance um, and ready to go, I'm not always, you know, if I feel like we have to go in a certain direction to meet the needs of students, I'll do that. And so I'm I'm really curious to see how flexible flipping the classroom can be and, and how people have incorporated it. Definitely. So is that does that kind of round out your list for TESOL or anything else that you want to focus on this year? Well, I'll say this. Those are my top priorities. <laughs> but I mean, of course, I want to know more about listening um, and as well as any cultural, social issues or ramifications of things that happen in the classroom. I, I want to learn about those things as well. So, um, you know, those are probably my top priorities. And, and what about you, Jean? Have you hit everything for you or yeah I agree with the cultural and social issues and I'm really torn as I look at the list because there are so many sessions that I want to go to that I think might actually um be more helpful to me in a way than the than the sessions that are focused on actual practice um and those are the sessions that that just will help raise awareness of what's going on for our students so for example there's going to be a session um about becoming a U.S. citizen And there's actually um, a member of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services who's coming to speak. And I think that that's going to be really interesting because um, at the college where we both teach, the vast majority of our students are immigrants. They're not um, students who will be returning to their countries. They are here to stay. And so I'd like to learn more about what that that process is like for them. So speaking of that process... um I know I've told Jean, but I don't think I've mentioned it here. The last two weekends, I volunteered at our uh, local international institute, and I gave mock interviews to students who are seeking citizenship. And so um, it was amazing to me all of the things that they had to know. I mean, there was uh, there were questions about, you know, you basically ask them questions about their um, form that they had to submit just to kind of verify that everything is true and correct. But also you had to ask them about the oath that they have to take. And they had to be able to read it and explain what an oath is, um, the oath of allegiance, and explain what allegiance means. But also they had to go through a series of questions on American civics. So, I mean, there were history questions on there that I'm a little embarrassed to admit. admit, uh, (laughs) I need a little brush up on. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was really eye opening. Um, they really earn it when they're going through these tests, and they're earning it in a second language most of the time. Right. Yeah, I know that you've been doing that, and I think it's wonderful. And hopefully, it's something that I can get involved into. And maybe after I attend this session at TESOL, I'll feel better equipped to to help out with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So report back. Yeah. Um, I think there's a few sessions that we'd like to especially um, name, even if we don't have time to see them. We want to encourage other people to go see them. They're going to be really great sessions. And one of them is um, called Hear Me Now, Improving Academic Skills with Student-Created Podcasts. And the speaker is uh, Amy Reuther, one of our colleagues from the school where we work. Go, Amy. Yay. So Amy will be speaking on Thursday at 1130, and um, we encourage you to go and listen to her. Yes, yes, please do. I'm, I'm sure it'll be interesting. Amy always has a lot of great things to say. So yeah, definitely listen. Let us know on Twitter what you think. Um, also, so I'm so embarrassed because I am overdue on a shout out to somebody from Twitter. Um, Nathan Solberg. Um, I'm so sorry. We just happened to miss you by a day in the last recording. So anyway, huge shout out to Nathan Solberg, who seems to be our first fan. Yay. And he's presenting at TESOL um, on Saturday at 1130 um, with Abby Porter, using Twitter, storytelling, and screencasting apps to reimagine your classroom. So I do plan on being there. And I hope that you do, too. Uh, it sounds like it's actually going to be really interesting and, um, you know, kind of fit in some of those things that Jean was talking about, about technology. So uh, definitely both uh, Amy's and Nathan's. Um, and I'm especially interested to listen to Amy's because our podcast that we're doing is my first experience with podcasts. So I'd love to see how other people use them and see how I could possibly use them in the future. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Well, you and I have talked, I think, at great length about the quality over quantity in terms of feedback. You know, everybody has that student or students who they want you to tell them every single error on the paper so that they can then go fix every error and then have that 100% paper. And for me personally, it's more about growth for them. And if you're correcting every single thing, it doesn't give them that chance to really soak in what maybe some of their key errors are. And so um, that for me is you know, what I mean when I say quality over quantity. So I may pick out three errors, and it's not always the three most made errors. Sometimes it's an error, like if it's a sentence structure error, that can really contribute severely to, you know, a lower grade and lower comprehension of what the person's saying. So to me, that's kind of a higher um, priority to let's get that fixed and focus on that, um, even though you may have like 60 verb tense issues. You know, let's first get things understood. So when I talk about quality, that's what I mean. You know, how can we improve the overall quality of your paper with, you know, I don't want to say minimal effort, but without having to like run through this race of correcting everything. Yeah, I agree. And I'm definitely someone I think who overcorrects um, and gives too much feedback and not even because it's something that my students ask of me, but because I'm a perfectionist and I, I can't not mark everything, but I do agree with you. I think that, 
um, it is better to focus on one or two things because if you mark everything, then they will go through and they will fix everything that you marked and they won't really take any time to think about what kind of mistake they made. It will just be, um, you know, correcting what you said to correct. And so there's no ownership over their problems then. Um, so I think that marking less, but giving more explanation, more feedback in terms of, um, strategies for how they could improve. Um, I think that that's what I, I think of with quality over quantity or less is more. So when you give strategies for them, can you maybe walk me through a little bit of what you, what you do when you give strategies to the student, you know, either writing them down or however you give that feedback? Definitely. Um, one strategy that, that comes to mind that I teach in class, and I don't know that I've written it down on, in my feedback ever, but one thing that I try to get them to do is um, focus on one thing at a time. So don't read your essay and try to find every mistake, but read your essay and try to find only verb tense mistakes. Then read your essay and try to find only run-on sentences and so on. And it can be really tedious, and I, I think that um, it seems like I'm asking a lot to make them read it that many times. Um, but by focusing in on one thing I, and isolating it, I think that it's, it makes it easier for them in the long run. So what I do is I give them colored pens or highlighters, and I go through, or I tell them to go through and, and um, identify every verb that they used first. Then look at the verbs that they used and do they match um, in tense and agreement and form. And so it can be a really lengthy process, but I'm hoping that through a lot of practice, it'll become quicker for them. Yeah, you know, I um, have similar type conversations with my students in terms of self-editing. I, I give them a, an editing checklist that, you know, they can go through and then the areas that maybe they didn't do so well in um, I ask them to kind of keep a running list of their top types of errors so that they can go back through every time they write a paper or a journal or, you know, any kind of writing. They go back through and they read it once for verbs, like you said. Read it once for singular plural errors. Um, and, you know, they get a little frustrated with that because it is time consuming. But what I tell them is that the payoff in the end is better because, you know, once you become a better editor you actually then become a better writer. So you won't have to spend that much time on the back end going back and reading it your essay four times for four different things. You'll just start to make the changes as you write. So, um, you know, I have seen that happen with students. And, you know, at first they're a little skeptical and they feel like it's just a lot of extra work. But, yeah, I think in the end it benefits them. I agree. And, and one comment that I find myself giving a lot um, is that they should write less and edit more, and that makes it much more manageable for them. So when I think of quality over quantity, I, th I think of it from both points of view, both from what I can do as, as far as giving um, less feedback but better feedback, and then also encouraging them to write less but make it better. So if I ask them to write a paragraph that should be half a page, and they write a full page and it's full of mistakes, I ask them, well, why did you write so much more than you needed to? Um, I would have much rather seen you limit yourself and then edit it better. Right, right. No, I mean, and that's a skill that they have to learn. It's not, when you're writing a paper, it's not about reporting back everything you know about the topic. You know, you have right. to skillfully uh, choose your details 
and you know show a, a bit of analysis not rather than just repetition from what you've either read or learned so yeah I, t- I totally agree with you one thing I've started doing uh, maybe a couple of years ago is at the end of the paper I'll make minimal comments throughout the paper keep it minimal um, yep keep it minimal that's right <laughs> good good catch Jean um, so I'll keep it minimal through the paper and then at the end I'll write you know to improve this essay and then colon and then I'll give a bullet bulleted list of maybe three things if it's a really weak paper it's usually three to four things a stronger paper it might be one to two things and so they're more uh, they're broader issues that they may need to take care of rather than pointing out everything. Um, Another thing I've tried is to maybe make comments on the first page, you know, make some corrections on page one, and then on the other pages, they have to find the errors. I think that's a great idea, and that's something that I had um, a colleague suggest to me, and I struggled with it because I am one of those people I think who has to mark everything that I see, but I, I agree with her that it's a good strategy and I'm going to start doing that I think oh and it saves you some time too I mean because let me tell you last semester I had my my writing class dwindled down to like eight students and this semester I have 16 and so I'm literally doing like double the work for the same exact class and so you know any way that you can be more effective in giving your feedback because by the time you get to you know page or paper 12 if you've given feedback on every single thing, I mean, you're worn out. And then that's uh, putting the student at a disadvantage yeah. probably because they're not getting you at your sharpest. Exactly. And so, you know, I think if you can be more focused with your feedback and then allowing the students some space to make the changes and improve on their own, um, you know, for me, that that works. So, yeah. Good. One thing that, that you said that I like that I um, also do is make checklists. Um, so when students turn in a first draft, um, I will give a little bit of feedback and then I'll make a checklist and on the checklist, I might include everything that I have on my rubric, um, which is something that we can also talk about how we use rubrics. Um, so I'll have students go through their essay and check things off as they edit their paper. So they have to check off that they found um, and corrected verb tense mistakes or whatever it is that they're looking for. And then that way when they turn it in, I can look at their draft, their second draft and say, well, you said you found this, but you didn't. So can you show me where you supposedly found this? And we can kind of look at the first draft and the second draft and, and say, well, you, you said that you found these kinds of mistakes and I, I see that you didn't. So we can kind of identify what the problem is, either that they didn't know what they were looking for or that they were identifying the mistakes incorrectly. Right, right. Yeah, no, I like that. I do. I do. So, yeah, when you use rubrics, I mean, how do you come up with a rubric or um, determine the categories that you're putting into your rubric? Well, uh, for the academic English class that I teach, I keep in mind the portfolio rubric that we use, which is um, standard for all the sections of that class and so I really model my rubrics off of that one um, so that they can kind of get used to those categories which we've discussed before Um, comprehensibility organization support and then as far as grammar we focus at my level um, at my class we focus on verbs and sentence structure Um, I usually try to have 10 
categories worth 10 points each because that's easier for me. And I think that it shows them that all parts are equally important, that they all play an equal role in the success of the essay. Yeah, generally I do try to have them equally, the points equally distributed um, like that as well. Sometimes though I may have like five categories that are worth 20 points each. Um, So when you do your rubric, do you give it on the final draft? Give them that feedback on the final draft or first draft? How do you usually? Only on the final draft. I give them written feedback on the first draft. um, And then sometimes I give them an an editing checklist like the one I described and sometimes I don't. Um, And then on the final draft, I go through the rubric. And I find that the rubric is just as helpful for me as it is for them. I struggle to to grade their paper if I don't have a rubric. Um, It helps keep me consistent from paper to paper in what I'm looking for. Um, And it helps them understand exactly why they lost points and where. Right. Right. What about you? Um, For me, I do it on the final draft because I I want them to see that what's being graded is, you know, the editing process as well. So it includes that the whole process, not just, you know, what happens to be in the paper in the first draft. So, so yeah, I do that on the final draft as well. So do you share yours with the students, I guess? You were talking yeah, about I do. Um, I always share the rubric with students. Um, often I will post the rubric um, in our Blackboard website for them to see before they complete the assignment um so when I when I assign the first draft I will sometimes show them what the rubric looks like that I will use to grade their final draft not always but sometimes yeah no that's fair that's fair definitely definitely what do you do as far as feedback on um great non-graded assignments well I like to still provide encouragement you know I don't I may not give as much feedback on less formal assignments Um, But, you know, when I was in graduate school and we had to write a lot of journals, there was one um, instructor in particular we had to write a lot of journals for. And it was sometimes nice because he he would just put like a smiley face next to something you said to show like, you know, hey, I I feel you. And so I always appreciated that. So sometimes I will just leave a smiley face if I have nothing else to say. I will too. And I'm so glad you said that because sometimes I feel kind of silly, like it's not not a serious thing to do. But I really think that it does make a difference, and especially when you're giving, as you sometimes have to, um, negative feedback or, um, you know, you're criticizing something that they've done. This can be a way to soften the blow and let them know that, hey, I'm not mad. This isn't personal, um, and I appreciate your effort, but this is something that you could work on. Right, right. And I've also given, I think I may have mentioned this to you um, when it happened, but I had a student who would write her, it wasn't her formal papers, but it was like she would write homework or journals, free writing, using like text talk, you know, like Uh, the letter U for you. And I mean, it was so awful. And I don't know why she did it because her papers were fine. Like they never had any of this, this texting look to them or anything. But Um, And so one time I did put to just kind of like poke fun at her, but not to, you know, to get my point across, I I just put S-R-S-L-Y question mark, like seriously, Um, because I wanted her to know like that doesn't really fly. I mean, I think it's, you know, fine for when you're texting, but um, we really need to like 
step it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, yeah, she laughed and, you know, it, it improved over time. So that was good. I mean, I got my point across. But, yeah. um, you okay. know, I don't want her. I didn't want to shame her, make her feel bad. I wanted her to feel like I was in on the joke. But at the same time that I was, you know, putting the kibosh on the joke as well. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> a really good way of approaching it. Um, one thing that I kind of struggle with is finding a balance between positive and negative feedback, because like you just said, you don't want to shame a person and you definitely don't want to beat them down and discourage them and make them feel like they can't do anything right. Um, but at the same time, uh, you want to point out to them the things that they can improve because in the end on their final draft, if they didn't improve that because you didn't comment on it, then you sort of feel like, um, you did a, a disservice to them or that you didn't do everything you could to help them get the better grade. So it's, it's hard to find that balance. I don't know about you. Um, you know, I, I do try to give positive feedback, like, Hey, look at this great thesis statement or, you know, whenever they, I, I like to catch them doing things well, you know, it's kind of like parenting advice as well as, you know, catch them doing things well and, and compliment them. And then hopefully that'll kind of, um, you know, minimize what they do negatively. And so I do try to catch them doing things well, and I let them know what the strengths of their paper or whatever it is that I'm grading, what the, what strength the strengths are. Um, but, you know, I, to be honest, we're there to help them improve. And so rather than seeing it as like negative feedback, I always try to word word it like, this is what you need to improve, or this is how you would have a stronger paper to try so to use like maybe more positive language to describe what their weaknesses might be. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, it's all about how you word it and that you can make anything look positive um, or constructive. Uh, of course, even when we do this, we still get students who are dissatisfied. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, grade grubbing... I don't know if it happens a lot with you. I've noticed an increase lately um, where people are just dissatisfied with their grade. Um, and I, I had somebody at one point send me an email saying, you know, oh, my midterm grade, it was a C. I get straight A's. Can we talk? And I was like, you know, maybe that's not the best way to approach me. If you, you know, are you concerned mostly about your grade or improving? Or maybe you want to know why your grade was so low. Um, and so for me, I like to use feedback then, you know, like going over their body of work with them then and giving them that feedback and saying, you know, hey, you know, this was a great paper, but you'll see here, these were some of the things that could have been even better. Um, I had somebody recently, too, who was, I'd never had anybody argue an, an A paper. She had a 92. Yeah. And she's like, why wasn't it 100? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's intense. And I said, well, because, uh, you know, to me, I mean, I'm the type of writer who where the work is just never done. I would never give myself 100% on something. And so, um, you know, there's always work to be done and improving it. And so um, it was a little bit of a um, tense conversation um but you know and 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 that was a student who felt like I should have corrected everything you know why didn't you correct everything then if you were going to say I had this type of issue well why didn't you correct everything and it's like well you're right you know I did say that you you know you had this issue but I can't correct all of them for you right you know that's something you have to go back and figure that out for yourself 
Um, and then there's always like the tutoring office or writing center. So, you know, there's support there for you as well. Um, yeah, I remember when you told me that story and I remember the advice that you gave. I don't know if it was to this particular student or to your whole class, um, but it stuck in my mind and I repeated it to my class a few days later. And that was the phrase, I'm a teacher, not a grader. Um, <laughs> and when I said that to them, it it very clearly resonated with them. They knew exactly what I meant and uh, they seemed to really appreciate it because then I, I had a student later say something about how she just wanted to get better or just wanted to improve. And yeah, oh, that sounds I mean, familiar. That's kind of sounds like what I just told you to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the student I did say that to, um, you know, the student was just in disbelief of her grade and couldn't believe that it was what it was. And, um, you know, she she was just heavily focused on that grade. And I said, you know, um, I'm while part of my job is to give you a grade, you know, my title is teacher and I'm here to teach you something so if you would want to make more headway with me about the grade issue why don't you come to me and say hey how can I fix this error how can I be a better writer how can I be a more efficient student in class you know coming to me to to solve a problem is always you know preferred over coming to me and saying, hey, now I'm a straight A student. It's like, well, maybe you're not if you're getting this grade. You know, maybe you're just living by this definition that you've had in the past of yourself, but you need to maybe look at at your own skills and your own habits. Maybe they're getting dull. Yeah, so how a student approaches the issue can make a big difference. It does, it does. Yeah. So yeah, I am a, I'm a teacher. Me too. (laughs) And all you listeners out there who are also teachers, um, we'd love to hear your feedback, speaking of constructive criticism. Um, So let us know what you think. Uh, Give us any advice that you have about feedback and rubrics and grade grubbing and how you handle these kinds of situations. Yes, please do. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about adjunct unions um, for this segment of adjunct antics. (laughs) Um, I know that what piqued my interest in adjunct unions was um, a story that I heard on NPR on All Things Considered. Um, It was called Part-Time Professors Demand Higher Pay. Will Colleges Listen? Um, It aired on February 3rd, 2014. So it's very recent. Um, and I was, as I was listening to this, it's just a few minutes long, so I encourage everyone to listen to it. Very eye-opening. <laughs> um, I was especially struck by this one woman's story. She is a published poet and has a master's degree. Um, she's been teaching at the college level for 20 years. Um, and she got to the point where she had to sell her plasma to buy gasoline. And that really hit me hard because I think I couldn't help but imagine myself in that situation and um, it made me feel really vulnerable. So that's what made me want to learn more about um, adjunct unions. Sure, with the, with the economy the way it is right now. I mean, you know, as, as people who really took care to educate themselves, it is, um, it is shocking that, 
you know, there are so many people who are so seasoned and so talented um, who do make, you know, such little amount of money. Um, I actually first heard about the union movement through um, SEIU, Service Employees International Union. They had sent me an email saying that in St. Louis, they are putting together a union and um, had, you know, asked me to check out their website and either show support or join the union. And so that was my first, um, I guess, my first uh, view into the union world for adjuncts. So to put it in perspective, what what you said a moment ago about, um, you know, how how educated adjunct professors are and how much time and money and training they've had and then how little money they make. Um, one statistic that I read is that adjuncts average an income of twenty five to twenty seven thousand dollars per year. So not a lot. Um, I know that in the NPR story that I listened to, um, there was someone who tried to argue that that adjuncts actually made a pretty decent living wage, um, and this person wasn't factoring in planning time. And so then an adjunct commented on it, and she calculated that she made about $8 an hour. So that was really alarming to me also um, to, to look at it from that perspective and actually see some numbers. Right. Well, you know, I had read, it must have been at least a year ago, I had read a piece um, through TESOL, actually, uh, a position paper on equitable treatment for part-time adjunct and contingent faculty. And, you know, they made the argument that there should be greater salary, greater benefits uh, for, you know, all teachers um, under, you know, it doesn't matter if they're adjunct or not. And I thought it was a really compelling piece. Um, You can find it on the TESOL website. Um, And I just, I felt like it, I felt very supported by my organization, which I liked, I liked seeing that. Um, But it had some great ideas in terms of how to use adjuncts, in terms of, you know, it should be somebody who's visiting because they bring a greater perspective rather than somebody who is just, doing it because they need money and love the job. Um, You know, that that would be a better way to use adjuncts and to have more positions that are full-time and um, to use adjuncts as a kind of a minimal type of situation. Right. So, again, to to give a quick statistic from the NPR story, um, 76% of all college instructors are part-time. So what you're saying, based on the paper that you read from the TUSL website, is um, that it should be the opposite, that the vast majority should be full-time and that adjuncts should be a small percentage of visiting and uh, otherwise temporary positions. Exactly. And, and they talk in terms of compensation, but also professional development. You know, a lot of times when you're an employee at a company, you're getting things like professional development and 401k and those types of benefits. And so, um, you know, this paper really pushed to give those types of benefits to adjuncts. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to see the direction that the unions go. It sounds like they are getting a little bit of traction and that they've made uh, you know, some progress in some areas. There was today, there was a town hall meeting uh, through the um, the SEIU. And so, you know, I'm looking at Twitter, you can see that a lot of people really kind of, you know, 
stood up for that. You know, people are saying things like, um, you know, I need to teach 20 classes a year to afford to live in Chicago. Uh, Crystal Clayville said that. And so, um, you know, it, it just seems like there are a lot of people looking at this very long list of tweets who could get behind this idea. Yeah, and um, one thing that I read um, concerning the success of unions so far is that they really have made a difference. Um, in an article from Inside Higher Ed called Union Raises for Adjuncts from July 2013, um, the article explained that that uh, schools that have unionized have noticed improvements in collective bargaining power. They have better salaries and benefits. They're more likely to get paid for office hours. They're more likely to get paid for professional development, like you said. And of course, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is TESOL, since we're leaving in two days for that. And I know we're both super excited to go, yes, but are. it is a huge expense that we paid for out of pocket because we don't get any funds for professional development. Um, another statistic that I read in the higher ed magazine or in the, um, in that article was that 8%, 18% of adjuncts on unionized campuses, um, are getting paid for course cancellations, um, compared to 10% of their non-union peers and 15% of unionized campus adjuncts are paid for office hours compared to only 4% of other adjuncts, um, so that's concrete evidence that um, that the unions are making a difference. And I think that uh, that's probably the first thing that people say when they argue against the union as well. Is it even making a difference? Well, yes, it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it will be really interesting to follow this movement because it seems like it's you know, really starting to pick up the pace and get some attention. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see a year from now where they are with this and what's happening. Yeah, it says that right now 22% of adjuncts are in unions. So I would be very interested to see what that number is a few months from now and then six months from now and in a year. Well, maybe we should check in. Maybe We, should we will. And of course, midpoint. we'll still be doing the minimal pair then. So we'll let of you course. know. Of course. All right. So before we go... We um, just kind of want to reiterate our shout outs. Definitely go see Amy Reuther's uh, session at TESOL as well as Nathan Solberg's. Um, and then I also want to give a shout out to at Newbie Celta. Um, gave me some great advice for prioritizing my um, my picks for TESOL. I was getting a little bit stressed and overwhelmed because I think for um, just for Wednesday or for Thursday and Friday, I had like over 100 options that I had narrowed it down to, which obviously I can't be at all those places at once. So Newbie Celta kind of helped me prioritize and get it get it under control. So I appreciate that. Um, our TESOL countdown. Two days till TESOL. So. And uh, we will be reporting probably when we get back um, on what we learned. So definitely tune in and hear what we have to say about what we learned at TESOL 2014. Right. And if you see us in our The Minimal Pair t-shirts, come up and say hello. You know, we'll give you a shout out on our next on our next episode. And we would just love to hear your thoughts on the show. And we'd so. love to meet you. Yes. Yes. So enjoy TESOL. And uh, until the next time, keep it minimal. Mm-hmm.